We continue our summarizing of various objections to the truthfulness and accuracy of the Bible that have been discussed in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? In discussing various objections, we have come to the following propositions. First, the Bible presentation of the moral nature and actions of God is free from inconsistencies when accepted in their simplicity. Second, if it be accepted that God changed his mind in view of certain developments, as the Bible plainly affirms that he did, objections from these situations are eliminated. Thirdly, when human physical characteristics are ascribed to God, we are to understand them as figurative, using our common sense. Fourth, it is man's reactions to the moral light forcefully presented to him by God that determines his salvation and destiny, not any determining predestination on the part of God. Fifth, sin is a free choice of the pathway of disobedience, not some fixity within us causing us to act in a certain direction. Sixthly, man is able of his own volition to repent or turn from his sins and be saved, or God would not have commanded him to do so. Seventh, salvation is not all of God, but is a cooperative enterprise between God and man. The Holy Spirit enlightens and persuades. The servants of God pray and exert a similar persuasive influence. The sinner reacts by repenting of all sin and exercising faith in Christ. The Word of God is an instrument used by all three agents. God cannot save all men, therefore, even though this is His will. Eighthly, the Atonement of Christ cannot have been a literal payment for the guilt of sinners to the personal nature of God the Father, because this conflicts with other propositions. Either the plain biblical affirmation that Christ died for all men in the same sense would have to be denied, or the salvation of all men be guaranteed. There is no other alternative. Thus we start over in this consideration with a scientific biblical approach and lay down the proposition which has been seen to have been proved from the Bible that the atonement of Christ was made for all men in the same sense. A second proposition we may establish without challenge that only a minority are benefited by the sufferings of Christ in being saved and spared the penalty of suffering for their own sins. Thus we may conclude that the Lord Jesus Christ did not literally pay for or discharge the penalty of anyone's sins, but accomplished that by his solemn death for the sins of the whole world that enables God to forgive repentant sinners freely by his grace. This is the simple gospel. God is not anxious that we understand all the mechanics of salvation, but has emphatically commissioned us to go forth and declare the wonderful fact. 
that now that the Lord Jesus has tasted death for every man, all who repent of all sin and exercise committing faith may be reconciled to God in forgiving love and be happily engaged in the service of God now and forever. By this procedure, all inconsistencies on this important matter are eliminated. This brings us to a ninth objection which we have considered. This is a matter that proceeds from the idea of the atonement that has been presented. It is affirmed that justification, as used in the New Testament, refers to the method of salvation in effect in this gospel age as being based upon a principle of imputation. The guilt and penalty of the sinner is thought to be literally imputed to Christ so that it was legally discharged in his atoning death. Then the righteousness or obedience of Christ is said to have been literally imputed to the sinner so that he stands before the judicial bar of God with a positive righteousness or is credited with a moral character which is not his. Of course, since the death of Christ is a historic event which took place over 1900 years ago, whatever imputations were made were made at that time and are not now being made. This involves a theory in great theological complications which cannot be discussed here. On the other hand, the most common term in the New Testament and in the whole Bible for the way of salvation is the word forgiveness. This is the opposite of strict justice. It is a relaxation of a just claim against another without any kind of compensation whatsoever. It is to face the wrongs that another has done against us with all frankness and simply to pardon these offenses out of a goodness of heart. No thought of equivalency is entertained, or the idea of forgiveness would be spoiled. There is no consideration whatever of retributive justice in a true act of forgiveness. It is easy to see that these two ways of salvation conflict, and thus objections have been raised against the New Testament consistency and truthfulness in this important matter. To this we reply that the common word in the entire Bible as to the way of salvation is that of the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in the death of a Savior. In the absence of any contrary instruction, we can only understand that God proposes to forgive our past sins or bring us up to date. A good number of passages have been read in our regular consideration. We, we will only refresh our minds by reading two. In Luke 24, 46 and 47 we read, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins, or repentance unto remission of sins, should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
And in Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. This forgiveness is the same in kind as we are to exercise toward one another. This we read in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Here these two procedures of forgiveness are placed upon an identical basis. The words of the Bible must be allowed to interpret one another. Justification is used as an equivalent term to forgiveness. In Acts 26.18, for example, Paul affirmed that God had sent him to lead people to repent and receive forgiveness of sins and sanctification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, he affirmed to the Corinthians that they had been sanctified and justified. Therefore, the word justification must be understood in the sense of judicial pardon. In the absence of New Testament theorizing on the matter of imputation and all that is involved, we are to accept the simple declaration of the New Testament that the gospel invites all men to repent and exercise faith unto the forgiveness of sins, by which we would naturally understand the forgiveness of past sins. While the justification of imputed innocency does not appear to be presented in the New Testament, the word is used concerning salvation in this age of God's great grace. Justification is particularly associated with the resurrection of Christ, as we read in Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Again in Romans 5.10 we read, Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Further, in verse 18, we have the words, Unto justification of life. It appears that the Apostle Paul is presenting the glorious fact that salvation is to bring us into such an intimate relation to the Lord Jesus Christ that his resurrected life becomes a reality in our everyday experience so that the true Christian may live a completely transformed life by the grace of God. This may be what James referred to when he wrote, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. In chapter 2, verse 24. At any rate, the Bible delivers itself from any objection of inconsistency and presents the possibility of having our sins forgiven by God's grace through repentance and faith. But a tenth objection that we have considered and engaged our attention is that relative to the way of salvation. It is frequently affirmed that upon one act of faith our past, present, and future sins are all dealt with so that it is impossible for the true Christian to ever come under condemnation again. Since all judicial penalty has been supposedly dealt with in mass, 
he possesses an unconditional guarantee of heaven. But if this be so, inconsistencies arise to many Bible readers. Many passages are encountered in Old and New Testaments which solemnly warn the true children of God to take heed that they so abide in Christ that temptation shall not overtake them and be an occasion of their departing from the living God into eternal ruin. We have read a good number of passages to persuade us that future salvation is not a certainty to the true Christian, but that it is conditioned upon his continuance in a happy state of faith and obedience until death. And so we see the great considerations of the word of the Lord. We shall have to continue this topic in our next visit, how we pray that the word of God may be established firm in our confidence. Our Heavenly Father, with thanksgiving we come to Thee, thanking Thee for Thy blessed word and Thy blessed gospel and for its profound simplicity. Now we pray that the faith of many may be encouraged and that many may repent of sin, come to the Lord Jesus, and by faith in His death receive forgiveness and be reconciled in fact and reality to Thee, O God, to go on to serve Thee in happy fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.